www.radiostation.co.uk Number 523 Hello folks and welcome back to the Outdoor Station and another podcast to help you pass one more hour in isolation this time on the subject of foraging for wild foods I didn't release a podcast last week due to the fact that I was, well, completely burnt out, to be honest, from creating the seven live video streams in two weeks, plus, of course, numerous podcasts since Christmas. The attention to detail, both technical and creative, can sometimes really take its toll. The video streams, however, are proving very popular with lots of viewer interaction and several podcast fans have asked that I release the audio from them, as I'm doing today, for those who want to listen while possibly driving, walking or doing something else. Yet another DIY job, no doubt. The video of this live stream is still on YouTube and Facebook on the Outdoor Station Live page, and you might want to check it out, as my guest Elisa Cutcliffe from Edulis Wild Foods naturally refers to numerous images as she's talking about foraging and what spring foods you might find available in the hedgerows currently. I am doing a live stream on different subjects with different guests each Wednesday at 7pm. So make sure you follow me on all the various social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and YouTube or the Outdoor Station website, of course, to join in. Anyway, let's now join the show with Lisa Cutcliffe, recorded on the 17th of April 2020. Hello and good evening everybody. Welcome once again to another live stream here on the Outdoors Station. It's been a busy week as I'm sure you've seen with the previous streams and tonight we're having a, another interview, a bit of a show and tell, a bit of education, a bit of, a bit of help to see what's going on in the beautiful naturous uh, larder around us tonight with our guest Lisa Cutcliffe. Now, uh, there are people joining us, as I can see, at this moment in time. Um, there's only a couple popped up. Richard Barnes, Richard Barnes. Hello from Doncaster again, Richard. And I'm sure many more people will be joining us as we proceed over the next five or ten minutes into the programme. If you're watching this in the future, of course, then please uh, do watch uh, the whole library of uh, of videos and podcasts that are available on the Outdoor Station. But in particular, this is going to be a fascinating evening. And my guest this evening, as I say, is Lisa Cutcliffe from Edulis Wild Foods. Now, she's a a wild food specialist and foraging instructor based in Leeds, with 18 years of experience of picking wild fungi, fruits, flowers and foliage from nature's larder. Uh, Now, of course, outside of COVID-19, she's normally extremely busy running foraging courses. Unfortunately, uh, that's been curtailed like everything else at the moment. But uh, predominantly in Yorkshire, Hampshire, Cumbria and beyond, which includes urban, woodland, grassland, hedgerow, lakeside, salt marsh and seashore. I think I'll have to get her to write that again because it's a bit of a tongue twister. But anyway, I'd like to welcome Lisa to the show. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. (laughs) Well, thanks very much for, for taking the time to, to come on and join us. Uh, it's good to uh, get you in your, uh, in your kitchen in Leeds somewhere by the sound of it. Uh, and have you been out picking, picking things for us today? 
I have. Um, it's hard because there's not many woods and things near me. I'm quite urban here, but I have managed to find you a few bits to talk about. So we can go through any of those that come up. Lovely. Fantastic. Well, I always look forward to doing, uh, to doing that, obviously, as the show progresses. Uh, now, let's, let's just start. The edulous name, edulous wild foods, is obviously your, your name. What does edulous mean? Um, it's, it means edible. Uh, that's in Latin, apparently. So there's a few species that have edulous as the second part of their Latin name. Okay. So it's as simple as it? it's, it's edible and good. Right. Well, well this <laughs> can't be argued with that then. Uh, no, the other yeah. question, I suppose, with the, the COVID situation, I picked up a couple of your videos which I've seen on, on your social media, on Instagram. Uh, and obviously, as you say, you're, you're on the edge of town or, or slightly urban there, but you've got a, a woods nearby. Uh, is, the, is the COVID situation actually helping the woods and helping a lot of the, the hedgerows recover rather than being sort of normally tramped down by, by lots of people that are obviously visiting? about that it hasn't been very long and it's only early spring but um i think people are still going out and exercising so i think most people are, are good and they stick to the paths and they don't trample things and you know we'll come on to good foraging ethics in a, in a second and one of those is to tread lightly and carefully and not to trample everything if you're going off piece a little bit um i think what has been interesting this year is that spring came super early we had a really mild winter and that has meant we were seeing things in january that you don't normally see till march and we're seeing things now that are normally out in june so it's been a funny year and i suppose the the weather generally um well the weather's been very strange for the last six months 12 months hasn't it so it's it's affecting everything would you normally be doing courses now as a matter of interest is this normally when you sort of start actively doing things i do uh, in fact i was sitting here at home on Easter Saturday thinking, oh, I should be on the beach right now telling everybody about seaweeds. And, and it was such a gorgeous day as well. And you, you just pray for days like that for your seaweed, you know, for coastal courses particularly. And, oh, it was a stunner and it was kind of gutting not to be able to be there where yeah. I should have been and I'd... showing people, you know, all the glories of what you can eat on the coast. And so just as a matter of interest for people like yourself who, who do sort of uh, teach foraging or teach wild foods knowledge is that some a subject that lasts just purely for sort of springtime or does it go through to autumn or longer oh uh, now that i've been doing it quite a long time i can i can find something to eat all year if i want the thing that happens is there's more abundance and more variety in spring and autumn i would say summer can get a bit dry so a lot of things that flowered and did their lush green thing in the spring sort of die back a little bit and maybe have regrowth in the autumn or there's the things that had all their flowers and blossoms through the spring and summer and then then they're going into fruit and to seed into the autumn so autumn particularly is my favorite season because it's the most abundant and there's the most fungi because they're my absolute favorite but I eat everything. I do all types of wild food. I do wild meats. I do fishing. I do shellfish. I hunt for razor clams. I do all all aspects of wild food. So I can find something all year. That means you've got a very cheap supermarket bill by the sound of it in that case. <laughs> well, it means what I do then buy in the supermarket is is high quality and 
high welfare or whatever I, I can, you know, get that's good. Yeah, excellent. Cool, cool. Right, well, um, for people for people obviously watching this and slowly coming to the party and joining in, uh, I'd just like to remind you, uh, if you would, if you have a sort of fairly big question, put a capital Q at the at the bigger of at the beginning of the question, and we'll bring that in towards the end. But during the uh, the, the show, if there's any conversation or any comments you want to make, Rose is sitting here once again in the chat room. Say hello, Rose. Camera's up there, microphone's there. Hi guys, yeah, I'm here. Some interesting questions coming in already, great. So there you go, so good, there's some questions piling in, which is excellent. So Rose will be chipping in every now and again with, uh, with various comments. But let's start now, right at the beginning, because obviously uh, foraging and, uh, and the law are two separate things. People, I think, probably like to know to, to start with what they can do or what they sh shouldn't do legally. Uh, as it were, and then we'll start to get into the nitty gritty of uh, of the actual goodies that they can find in the hedgerow. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm going to do a very compacted version of what I normally start my courses with. So, you know, we all arrive, we say hi, I introduce myself. And then the first thing we do before we go anywhere is to go over the do's and don'ts of forages, uh, foraging. Um, most of them are just common sense and safety based. But there's some that's also extra levels that I put in for my personal ethics of foraging, which are around responsibility, sustainability. And, you know, people people sometimes accuse foragers of stripping the countryside and everything. But I think that's not in, in our interest to do that. I think passionate, good foragers don't do that. Uh, and they, they make sure that they pick in a way that allows more, more stuff to come. Um, so the, the basic rules are follow the countryside code and they say that we're allowed to pick um, the four F's, which you already said in the intro. That's foliage, fruits, flowers and fungi. The, the flip side of that is that you mustn't uproot things if you don't have landowner permission. So if it's your garden or you know whose land it is and you've asked their permission, then you can uproot things because some of the foods are tubers and roots and things and bulbs. But... Typically, if we're just foraging in public access areas or places like that, then to um, make sure that you only take a little bit from each plant. So it's what you and need you as opposed plant, to doing anything commercially. It's yeah, what you, what so this, you personally need. This is need. purely for personal consumption. Yeah, my courses are for people who want to forage a little bit to add to their diets. This isn't about commercial picking, and I, I'm not even going to go into that. But if if you if you do sell anything, then you absolutely need, you should have um, permission from the landowner where you pick that stuff. And it, it needs that provenance anyway as well, really. Um, course, yeah. I really said about treading lightly, but the, the main rule of thumb is if in doubt, leave it out. That's it. You, you have to be 110% sure of your ID before you even consider eating it. But the other part of that is to make sure that you know which parts are edible or what you need to do to make it edible because just because something is listed as edible say elder for example actually it's only the flowers and the berries and the berries should be cooked the rest of the plant is actually quite toxic so right. again just because something's listed in a book as edible you need to read further and research and make sure you understand each part of it and what you might need to do to it to make it edible um okay the other thing i would say learn the invasive species there's things like Japanese knotweed or um, there, there, there's things that we mustn't spread further that you might be foraging. Mm, giant hogweed However, is terrible, isn't it? 
giant hogweed. I mean, you, sh- you shouldn't be wanting to touch that anyway because it's photosensitive, it's phototoxic. So if you get the juice on you mm. and then you go in the sun, UV light can cause, I mean, hospitalization burns, skin graft burns. Um, so giant hogweed is one you need to know. So that's the other rule I would say, learn all the poisonous species first, the really deadly ones for fungi and for plants. And make sure you're aware of those, what they look like. You don't need to find them all. To, to know them but just be aware of their key features because then if you ever see something that might satisfy one of those key features the alarm bell should go off and you should be extra careful and, so that's and, another thing i say to people and where would people start from the basics to give themselves confidence about spotting those those things with the key features what 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 advice or where would you suggest they look i know you're going to mention books a bit later on Are you, is it going to be in a book or yeah. elsewhere yeah, um, absolutely get books. There's still no substitute for that as far as I can see. Books that are, you know, well-renowned, peer-reviewed, proper publication books. Because the online is a fantastic resource, but I think it should only be used in tandem with proper field guides and foraging books. Because then you can use the online stuff to to give you a great big image library because things can be quite variable. It can help getting the the full picture of all the pictures online of that thing. But you really need to start in a book, I would say. I'd still say that's the case even with all our online richness just now. Okay, excellent. So talking about uh, imagery then and coming on to information, I'll I'll pull up the first slide here. uh, And and Mm. I think people might actually recognize this if uh, if they've been out. Oh, have I left that in? <laughs> Common name Latin name. That was actually a, a, t- a template, that one. <laughs> oh, I, re- I didn't read that myself. Maybe I'll go to the next one. <laughs> I obviously didn't write in on that one. Oops, apologies. Um, yes, this is wild garlic. Now, it's I put European because there's quite a lot of species around the world which might be referred to as wild garlic in their local place. There's, there's some in America which they call ramps, and that is a slightly different allium it's a different variety but the one that we have here and i have an example just here as well okay hold um, on steady. is our native wild garlic these are the flower heads and the leaf is long and pointed it's a shiny ish smooth leaf it's got a very long vein down the back it looks a bit like a peace lily leaf or something if you've got that house plant and it also has these buds when they're not um, open yet. So this bud becomes this open flower. And all parts of this plant are edible. The, the bulbs as well, but remember in the countryside code, you don't uproot these plants. You can just use the leaves, the flowers, the, the seed pods, all of that stuff. But normally you don't need to uproot them. And so um, but the bulbs- how, would you, how would you use each part? Are, are they all used equally? Or do you use, make a different thing? I know they're very popular for pesto, but uh, in cooking, would yeah. you use them different? The leaves or something different to the to the buds? Yes, I would. It's nice because there's sort of this progression that goes through the season. So you start you start getting the first little leaves up, and those are really fresh and potent, and they're great for scattering on or having in a salad or to make your pesto with, or, or to blitz in with a hummus or something like that. But then one of my favourite things is these these unopened flower buds. Let's see if it can focus. 
it's it's going for my face, isn't it? Let's put that. There you go. There we go. Yeah. So that those unopened flower buds are fantastic. They are super little pops of garlic. And I've got a jar here actually where I'm. Uh, if we have time, I can just sort of talk about pickling and things like that. They're just fantastic. Then you've got them all year, and it's really good. You can dry this as well. And um, if you've got a dehydrator or you've got a fan oven, you can sort of heat up the oven to about I don't know 50 degrees or something, and then turn the oven off and just leave the fan on with the door a little bit open, and, and it will gradually dry these things out. But I've actually got I don't know if you can see behind me, but I've got some food dehydrators because I have so much stuff. I I, I invested in one of those, and it was only 35 pounds. It's not a big investment, but depends on your situation obviously but that for me for the mushrooms and the herbs is well worth it the flowers you can you could pickle those too but i like to just scatter them on all sorts of dishes think like you've just done a nice tray of roast potatoes or something just pull all these off and then scatter them just as you take them out of the oven so they warm through but they don't get scorched that's really delicious um like I've put them in for tartars and, and it's the same for chive flowers or anything like that that you might be growing. That These are related to chives. You can sort of see that they're similar. Um, they're all alliums, which is the onion and leek family. So with the, 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 the garlic um, aroma that they give off, it is, a, is it a strong aroma? I've often smelt it as I'm walking through an area which there's, there's a lot of wild garlic and it's very strong and I've picked a few leaves, but I'm never sure that the, the strength of the garlic is stronger in the bulb or stronger in the leaf or stronger in the bud. And then if I've dried it or if I've uh, prepared it like you've just suggested, um, is it just a hint of garlic that it gives to to the food, or does it give? Is it quite a pungent smell? It's it's pretty pungent, um, with a sort of a touch of bitterness, but not too much. It depends as well on where it was growing. They can be a little bit variable, like like all plants, depending on their their habitat where they are. These these favour the shady woodland floors, sort of semi semi shaded. Um, and a little bit damp as well. They like that. Not not soggy, but a little bit of damp, so that they prefer that that kind of environment. And they, I'd say that raw, any part of them are quite upfront hot, garlicky. Um, but if you cook it, it, it mellows right down. It's not. It, it'll never be quite the same as your cultivated bold garlic, because those those are actually a slightly different species. Of they're more of a um, leaky sort of garlic thing and and they've been cultivated so that the bulb is bigger and full of sugars and starches and things so if it's actually if you lacto ferment these leaves and things like that you, you bring out much more complex flavors and stuff which again you might have to look that up i don't think we've got time to go into it right now but you you just mix it with salt and their own juices and and it ferments over a while and completely changes the flavor profile while still garlicky the other, there's another one as well called three-cornered leek, which is an invasive plant. It's not native, and you can, I don't know if you can see these flowers are actually drooping down, and they're little, little trumpets almost. Especially if you're down south, you might see this one a lot. It's really popular around sort of the whole of the south area, and it's just escaped from gardens and things. And that one is also leaky, garlicky, and it does look similar. But if you look them both up, three-cornered leek, and it's called that because the flower stem has three sides. So I can show you. It's triangular. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, which um, the wild garlic. So one final question on this, then, so we can move on to the next one. Is I presume with everything that you pick, you do wash it, do you? 
usually, it, yeah, I do. Um, certain things I wouldn't wash, like elderflowers or something, because you'll lose all the flavour you're trying to capture. But anything that's on the ground, certainly, um, and I, I don't pick right next to roads or um, next to paths where dogs are and that kind of thing. You sort of need to be above the 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 p the the cock the cock leg p level. But if you sort of go off piece a little bit, you can see where things are clean and and not trampled by anything or anyone, and those should be cleaner. And I would pick in those areas. Okay, well, let's come on to the stinging nettle then. Obviously, most people will recognise this certainly from experience, if nothing else. That's right. I think it's one of the plants you learn straight off as a kid because you have a an encounter with it of an unfortunate kind. Most, most typically, I've got a sting right now from when I, I was picking these dandelions earlier. Um, it's it's a superfood. It's incredibly nutritious. And I think because it stings, we assume it's not edible. And that's just not true. It's very earthy and spinachy. And it's got so much plant protein in, it's really high in protein. So for for survival food, because I know a lot of your listeners will be more sort of trekkers and wild campers and uh, outdoors people. If you were stuck somewhere, you could live on nettle and your body would be pretty happy for a, a quite a long time because it, it, it contains so many good things that we need. It's got all 12 of the amino acids we need, actually. So, um, I mean, you say survive on it. I mean, survive on it raw or basic blanching or boiling, making a tea from it? What, what, in what way would you survive? You can, you can eat it raw, um, but you have to roll it. So if you – I haven't got one because I just was worried I, was, <laughs> I wasn't going to be taking gloves on and off. But you'll see, if you look up close on nettles, they've got these little little hairs. And if you can – you can actually literally grasp the nettle. You can come and – um, you sort of put your hand from below it and you go, you wash your hand up the stem. You can flatten those hairs and they don't then sting you. I'll try and show you. But sort of, you go um, up, uh, up the stem and you can grab it because you're flattening those hairs up. Right. So and it's possible. And if you can get the leaf and, and you can roll it in your hands and you, you can crush all those hairs down and you don't, then get stung it's pretty laborious though so if you were surviving i guess if you had a way to um to blanch them then even just 10 to 30 seconds in in boiling water will get rid of all that sting and it would be like a like a leak type of thing would it a leak type of thing. Uh, sorry the the the, the, the no the leak is a wrong example i mean it's obviously fairly fibrous so it would be edible and um okay on the tongue as the, the sting would obviously be gone but um like a spinach i was thinking more like a spinach, spinach. Sort of a hairy spinach rather than a leak okay so you've yeah. got here st george's mushrooms now uh, i know you're yes. a great great um mushroom forager are mushrooms uh, around all year round oh here we go yeah, I have a few little ones here. That picture was from last year because I can't go to my best spot at the minute. But um, these ones were right in urban area of Leeds. So you don't have to be in the wilds to forage at all. Um, yes, spring spring has lots of mushrooms, but there's fewer varieties avail available in spring. So there are mushrooms that some mushrooms that grow all year. So any time of year I can find some fungi. Even in the middle of winter, there's ones that can be frozen and they're, they're absolutely fine. But these ones are my, one of the first ones that you get that are substantial, recognisable mushroomy mushrooms. And they're called the St. George's mushroom because typically they are around either side of St. George's Day, the 23rd of April. 
that said, this year is crazy early for everything, and they're they're almost already done, and we're not, we're not even <laughs> we're still a week away from St George's Day. But these are fungi is a massive area, and you'd have to really research it before you start foraging mushrooms. But if you these grow in grassland, sometimes in woodland, but they they favour grassland, but they also like to hang out with ash trees, and they are just really sort of plain white all over. No ring on the stem, no, no little skirt, but they have gills. Um, and the tops are sometimes a little bit dirty or a little bit creamy, peachy colour. And they smell of sort of raw flower kind of smell, like pastry. Okay. So th there's lots of features that are distinctive about them. And they're just firm and meaty and lovely, really good mushroom. So they, they actually, in some, um, some way, they actually look like shop mushrooms. They've sort of got that per perfect, perfect look to them, yeah? They do, but the sharp mushrooms generally have brown gills and these have white. Right, right. That said, I must do, do a disclaimer here that just because a mushroom has white gills, it doesn't mean it's this mushroom because the most deadly family of mushrooms that we have, the Amanita family, which the death cat belongs to, also have white gills. So don't, you know, get lots of books, maybe go on a course before you even think about foraging mushrooms, but it is a wonderful thing to get into. It's so rewarding. Um, well, I love it. Put, it's, it's what hooked me. Let's have a look at a few more then. So these are elf cup. They're scarlet elf cups. They're quite, are they quite small mushrooms? Yeah, they can. They can be up to this size, but they're, they're usually quite small and they're just little cup shapes. They're completely different to your sort of cap and stem mushroom. They, um, they, they, sort of, they grow on dead wood rather than in the soil. And they're, they're just a little spring delight. They're not particularly flavoursome. They're sort of earthy and... and they're not strongly mushroomy, but they're just fun to make little canapes with or to decorate your dishes with. And I love to put flowers and colour onto my dishes as much as I can with forage goods. But these ones, yeah, the one you've got up now, the morel, this is a dried one from another year. And this is quite a good lockdown one as well. This is like the elusive morel hunt every year. Everyone tries to find morels because they're not that common in the UK. But these ones come in on imported wood chip. So I found this literally outside of B&Q or something, like it was just in a shopping park in a flower bed that they'd mulched with wood chip and there was loads of these mushrooms and they're, they're gourmet, like really, really gourmet mushrooms. And it's hilarious that they, they grow in the city. <laughs> I'd just like to remind people that Lisa will be taking some questions towards the end of the show. So if you have anything that's uh, coming to mind as we're going through this, uh, and Lisa touches on something, we'll come back to it certainly. Just put a cue at the beginning of your question and we will add it to the list and we'll, we'll bring it up later on in the show. So let's get back to uh, this wonderful smorgasbord of, of mushrooms there. Where did you pick that one up? Is that one of yours? Yeah, that, that's, that was literally, the, well, this time last year, I went to work in another town and I just popped into the centre to get a few bits and in the flower bed in the middle of all these skyscrapers around and everything there was just these hundreds of morels on the wood chip amongst the flowers it was just brilliant so i was i didn't care that i looked like a right weirdo i just went in and picked them all and took them home on the train fantastic <laughs> fantastic and is that another one from collection those ones are wild morels can you see they're different different shapes so this one here is a wood chip morel and it's um pointy and black or it was black dark 
whereas those ones are sort of blonde morels. They are um, the common morel, except they're so not common. Um, and that was, I was so excited because they were the first ones I found by myself without somebody sharing me the, their sacred spot. I think the, the, the thing with, with mushrooms that I found are that the, uh, the few events that I've been on or, or courses and, and followed people around is that there is, there is this, this uh, statement of, yes, it's edible, but it isn't, doesn't actually taste very nice. So some of these mushrooms that you're talking about now and you're showing us, are they pleasant to eat? Yes. Yeah? So it's St. George's mushrooms, the morel, and the one that my company is named after, the, the porcini uh, mushrooms, um, Boletus edulis, which they're also known as seps or a penny bun. Those are, you know, delicious. They're an autumn mushroom, but the, most most mushrooms are really delicious. The ones that we're really hunting um, are fantastic, but there's plenty that don't taste as much as well. So, so this, you, you sort of target the good ones. So this one that uh, that you've got a picture of here now is this? Do, is it also known as the Jew's ear mushroom? It is. Can you see the Jude bit on the end of its Latin name there? Yeah. So um, I don't use that name because it's it's. I don't use that name because it, it's just a little bit unnecessarily and it's old fashioned now to call it that. Um, yeah. So yes, technically that's correct, and it is in the Latin name, and it comes from the story of the in the Bible where um, Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus and um, to the Romans and all this stuff that happens in the the stories that people knew more um years ago when these things were named and in the in some translations of the bible it says that he felt so guilty and he hung himself um for betraying his friend and he it says in some translations that he hung himself on an elder tree which seems a little bit unusual given that i don't think they grow in sort of the israel area but um <laughs> i think it was either mistranslation or, or whatever but it does say that in some English versions, and these mushrooms like to grow on elder, particularly. So that's an elder branch that you're seeing there. Those are actually those um, jelly ears, as I call them, or wood ears. They are very popular in Asian cuisine, and they cultivate mm. them because if things grow on wood, sometimes you can cultivate them, right. like oyster yeah. mushroom things. Um, and they're they're very popular in stir fries and things because when they're dried and then you put them into your food, they suck up all of the flavour of whatever dish you're making. So for wild camping and things, they're a great one to bring with you because they're light and tiny when you bring them with you. But then, you know, you can pop them in whatever you're making and they'll soak up all the flavour. Right. Yeah. I mean, in particular, those ones I want to ask you about because we've, we've got a couple of uh, paths here, go through some woods and, and there's there's copious amounts on a few fallen trees. And they, they, yeah. they've obviously got that sort of um, soft texture to them when they're on the tree. But as soon as you take them off, they go all oh, like a dried up, dried up mushroom, a dried up piece of blotting paper. And it's like, well, I, 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 it doesn't actually excite you to eat them either raw. Or I'm not too sure what to do with them. I don't know whether to dehydrate them, wash them, dehydrate them and then chop them up or, or what. It's sort of they lose their appeal the moment they come off the tree is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I, I wasn't keen on jelly ears for a long time. I, I, I dismissed them for quite a long time. And I think it's because I didn't use them properly for the best effect. So what I found is don't try and cook them fresh. They will just be tasteless and grizzly, like really like finding a bit of gristle in your, in your casserole or something. It's not nice at all. Um, but if you deliberately dry them and then you put them into your dishes 
dried and then they as they rehydrate they take on all the flavor of your dish and the great thing about them is they're so flavorless of in themselves that you can actually make sweets out of them you can soak them in neat cordial or um or slow gin uh, my friend fergus did, did that years ago and we've all we've all got into it from because of him he um he sort of made that connection of it, it doesn't taste that strongly of mushrooms in itself so you can actually make sweets so this is one of the things my friend's kids love doing in the woods behind their house uh, they call them their woods it's not their woods but um they, there's loads of elder trees and the jelly is one of the things i taught them when they were like three and five and they still love to go and get the jelly ears, take them home, dry them overnight. And then the next day they can put them in neat black currant and have some of sweets. You can even dip them in chocolate and wait for that to harden and have vegan little jelly sweets made of mushrooms. Fantastic. It's just, it blows people's minds. They love it. Uh, this is another one that's uh, fairly common Well, we, where we are at the moment. And in fact, we had some of this on our, our salad the other day. But do, uh, do expand on this for people. Oh, nice. It's good to hear eating your weeds because it is a much maligned weed this one this is the jack by the hedge i'll just show you its flower because i'm not sure the um the uh photo i had there wasn't particularly in flower this um this is in the mustard family so although it's called garlic mustard it is a mustard first and foremost unlike the alliums that we've seen already and it's got four petals and that is one of the traits of the mustard and cabbage family the brassicas or the crucifers as they're called cross and they you could again the whole plant is edible they're a little bit these are what they're they're hotter a bit got a bit of a horseradishy edge which is quite nice but it also has a garlicky edge and for me this is a much deeper warmer more of a base note garlicky earthiness to it so when i'm i don't know like i make um homemade goat's cheeses from goat's milk i just curdle it with lemon juice and make my own cheeses and then I put all sorts of wild herbs and garlic and things through it and these two together the wild garlic and the jack by the hedge the two together make a really lovely flavor profile because the the wild garlic is sort of upfront hot and then this one is more earthy and a bit more base notey which is lovely and it's got that slight warmth from the mustard side of things this is extremely common really really common and you will find it yeah on waste ground by hedgerows that kind of thing but you do need to just check your plants because the orange tip butterfly lays its eggs on this. So just, just check your plant before you pick it for eggs. Because if, if it has eggs on it, not only do you not want to eat those, but we want to look after our endangered butterflies and things. Find out how easy it is to subscribe to all our free programmes. Visit our website at theoutdoorstation.co.uk or look us up on Facebook. Uh, ground elder. We've certainly got plenty of that uh, around here, but I've never uh, dabbled with it. What, what do you do with ground elder? So this is also in the same family. It's, these, it's in the carrot family, um, like the hogweed and other things I think we might have mentioned or we'd certainly discussed beforehand. This whole family of the umbellifers um, has many of our cultivated spices are in this family the carrot family so there's carrots obviously but there's things like parsley and dill fennel coriander all those sort of things and they have a big um well actually here's his cow parsley 
you know, and I think most people know cow parsley and what it looks like. So this is, uh, it's also called wild chervil, actually. Cow parsley, that's showing you that the umbral, umbral sort of, um, I can't get in the right camera, there we go. <laughs> uh, little florets of usually white, but sometimes yellow and or sometimes pinky flowers. So that whole family is massive and ground elder is in that family too, but so is poison hemlock and hemlock water dropwort. And those are deadly poisonous. So again, this family is not for beginners per se. You need to really get to grips with the umbellifers before you start eating them. But ground elder is very common in gardens and people often know it from gardening, but it's very common in woodlands as well. Unfortunately, this one's really wilty, so it's not very helpful. Maybe the photo um, in the slides is, is looking a little more perky. But if you, in the spring, those new shoots that come up, they're sort of glossy and um, a little bit translucent. And those are my favourite. They are really, really nice. You just want the emerging leaves that are coming out of the ground well before it flowers or anything. Those chucked into a salad, they taste like raw carrot mixed with parsley and sort of their own herby flavour as well. So if you've got it in your garden, if you, especially if you keep mowing it a bit or cutting it back, you'll keep getting new leaves up. Um, but yeah, they're in lots of woodlands as well if you're wild camping. Because when I'm wild camping, I love to eat, you know, forage my dinner as much as possible, especially if I find a pheasant or something on the way out there. <laughs> <And then laughs> that gets yoinked and um, I have yeah. that over the fire later on, absolutely. You're obviously the person to go wild camping with. I can see that. Uh, we definitely uh, yeah. just, just we're going to need a bigger pan. So um, mayweed, are, again, something I recognise but never, never uh, experimented with. So is this something you eat raw or you do do something else with this yes. one? This one is good raw. It's actually in the chamomile family, the daisy family. It's actually related to chamomile. It just doesn't have the petals around the edge like chamomile would, which is um, very much like a... a yellow centered white petal daisy daisies are also edible actually the common daisy this one is remarkable because i wish you could had smell vision because if you crush this and smell it it smells like like pineapple it's incredible really delicious so this particular one with the little lime green heads and no no um petals if you crush a little bit and smell it and it smells of pineapple then it'll be your pineapple scented mayweed this is delicious in a tea it, it loves scrubby rough ground it, it it won't it doesn't like to be treated nicely <laughs> it, it wants the most tough ridiculous environments to live in and that's where you find it sort of along along tracks and things which is difficult because that's often where you're going to have people walking and dogs and stuff so you need to find a spot where it's um you know not actually being tread, trodden on and stuff but if you can find that yeah it makes a delicious tea it's absolutely lovely so, so which part of it do you use? Do you use just the the the, the tips, or do you use the, the the stems and the leaves, or take the stems off? What what, what part do you use? Um, yeah, most of the the sort of the fresher tips and the flowers in there as well. Okay, and and is tea the best tea the best way to use it, or uh, else uh, in some other edible way? Well, from the tea, you can make sorbet or a syrup or um, you could put them into a vinegar if you wanted. There's lots of things you can do with something like that, even just sort of putting them with a bit of hot water or um, into a syrup with lots of sugar. Um, and the flavour then comes out and you can have it for longer than its short season. 
Okay. Um, well, I see that we've come on to hogweed, which is interesting because uh, we uh, we have um, fried hogweed shoots the other day. It was, in fact, one of the pictures that we were in the intro. Um, but I've not actually seen the hogweed develop into in this into this particular flowered plant. Um, so, are there different types of of hogweed that that grow in different ways? I know there's the the giant hogweed, which we've got to be careful of because that's the dangerous stuff. Yes. So the first thing to do if you're going to go looking for hogweed is to try and find somebody's video online where they found giant hogweed and common hogweed right next to each other so they can show you the differences, which is so useful. And that helped me a lot in the early days. I can't think of one offhand, but lots of people have done them. So have a good look on online and see if you can find a good comparison video that gives you all the ID points. And we haven't got time to go into it all now. But the common hogweed, which is our native one, is the one in the picture there. And, you know, you saw that we saw our cow parsley here. It's another cousin of that. But the flower heads are much bigger. They're sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're I don't know, 15 to 20 centimetres across sometimes, much more substantial. And the leaves, the leaves are big as well. They, they grow into lots of leaflets to make a big triangular leaf. Um, I tried to find a good picture, but it's really hard to get the whole plant in and be detailed. But. That one was one I found last week that was still just coming out, but you can sort of see the structure of it. The key thing is that it's hairy. It, if you look at this um, shoot I've got here, it is beautifully furry and hairy, and giant hogweed isn't particularly hairy like this. So that's useful. The, these... I was going to say, the, the, the difference that in my in, inexperienced way of looking at it, I, I spot these when springtime when it's the shoots coming up, and that's the part that, that we've eaten recently. But then I notice, as you say, nearby is giant hogweed, and the stems have got the red flecks in them, so I don't go anywhere near this. Is that apart, the, apart from the size difference, is, is that the main difference between the two? The red flecks is the instant way to spot that actually keep away from that particular plant? Yeah, so red, the red spots, and actually poison hemlock also has red red or purple blotching all over the stems as well. So it's good that it applies to both of those species you want to avoid. Um, diamond hogweed is massive, like it really is really, really big, but you sort of need to have seen lots of ones to know the difference really. It, it's quite hairless. It, the leaves are a bit more spiky once they get mature. And yeah, it has the red usually has the red and purple blotching, but you can't fully rely on that. It's, you just have to get to know the feel of the plant. And I would certainly research it and watch some videos of people showing you the right thing. But the two bits I love best on hogweed, common hogweed, our native one, which is only grows about six foot, well, instead of like 14 foot, um, is these the new shoots which I've got here. They're all gone a bit wilted now, but they were quite sort of tight. And those, you just, you just fry those up and, um, Wilt them in a pan, a bit of soy sauce or something's really nice. Oh, tempura them. Oh, my word, that's just so good. And you can still do it at camping if you've got a small, maybe not when you're carrying everything and it's got a super light hike sort of situation. But if you're not that far from the car or whatever and you can bring more stuff, then you can um, make a simple batter with corn flour and maybe like rice flour or whatever combination you want to use to make your favorite batter. And you can use sparkling water or you can use beer and make a batter for it. And then you can just deep fry it in in some oil in a small pan and it, they just go crispy and they're just a really lovely snack then you can put you know seaweed or salt or whatever all over them or you know chili flakes if you like a bit of that 
So those are really good. So for those you want the slightly bigger shoots, so you want a leaf that's going to grow massive whilst it's still small and all those little veins and everything, all the batter goes in between those and it's just it's fantastic. <laughs> and then the other thing is the seeds, which you've got the slide there. They're not ready now, but they are delicious. They're sort of a bitter orangey, um, warming, wintery spices flavour. And they're great in cakes and um, sweet things, but they're also great in savoury things like a tagine or a curry or something that, you know, it's a wild spice. I see it as a spice. So would you would you pick those and dry them or use them as they are or put them straight into a bottle or into a, a kiln jar or how would you sort of preserve those for, for use later? Yeah, dried. So they dry on the plant as, as like those ones there, so they're already nice and brown. Or you can pick the heads green and dry them at home and I find that they are more potent if you dry them yourself. Um, also it stops all the little spiders nesting in them and things, but you can pick them off the plant just like that as well if you find them and they look clean and, and you know, uh, perfect. Well, fantastic. And I just keep them in a jar. This is great. Well, we're going to come on to, to Elder in a second. So I'd just like to say again, folks, if you've got any questions, I've got a few here that I've gathered, which I'm going to be putting to Lisa in, in a minute. Um, there is going to be a change to our programming next week. We've been doing three streams a week now for the last two weeks. And uh, I have to say that it's been absolutely exhausting with the preparation and planning and delivering. So we've decided to do one major stream a week. Uh, and next week it will be on Wednesday. And we're going to be interviewing uh, another author. And this is the detail. Wednesday, the 22nd of April. Our next live stream is an interview with adventurous and author Sophie Rooney regarding her recent book, Run the Navia which details her 2016 run of 3,000 kilometres, self-supported, from Nordkamp, the northmost point in mainland Europe, to the German border with Denmark. A trip which started with a rash decision was full of highs and lows, all of which are detailed in this honest and enjoyable read. So come along and watch the live stream interview on Facebook and YouTube. Join in with the chat and ask questions. That's 7pm, Wednesday the 22nd of April, here on The Outdoor Station Live. Make sure you click the subscribe and reminder button now. Excellent. So we are back and we're going to be talking about Elder now. And uh, I'm going to hand over to you on this one. Yeah, sure. I mean, we are running out of time, so we might want to not go all the slides I've prepared. Um, okay. I, did have a, I had a branch of elder. It was just that we had everything there if we wanted. I can't find the branch of elder that I had. It doesn't matter, though, because it's not in flower yet. Um, the picture you've got there is the white elder flowers are the, the wild ones. And I think people are quite familiar with the flavour of elderflower because of elderflower cordial or um, drinks and things that have it in. It's quite common now in the supermarkets. Um, but it's really nice if you make like a Turkish delight or something with it. It's delicious. But that, the other one in the picture there is one that's in my garden, which is a black elder and it makes pink flowers. So it makes a naturally pink elder flower cordial. So if any of you have one of those in your garden or you know someone who does, maybe they won't mind you borrowing some. I just find that they're not as flavorful as the white ones. So even if I'm making a pink cordial, I put um, some of the white ones in as well. As I said earlier, the whole plant is actually toxic. It's just the flowers and the berries. But if you, one of my favorite things to do is to make um, 
a syrup with the with the berries. They need to be cooked because there's something in them that we don't really want to be having too much of. If you have them raw, it's not like they're deadly or anything. It's just if you're going to make something out of them, make sure it, you do heat it through and cook it through. But they're they're just they're brilliant. They're antioxidant, antiviral, antibacterial. They're just so good. So at the moment, especially with all this virus stuff going on, I've been raiding my stores of um, elderberry syrup because it really keeps away coughs and colds. It boosts your immune system. Um, now I, I'm not making any claims about coronavirus, but it, what it does do is is help your body fight off things. So who knows, it might also help you fight off something like coronavirus. But um, you've got to be very careful with such things. I have no actual medical thing on that. It's just it is known to be really good, especially with chesty things. So if you've got a chesty cough or something, it really helps loosen everything up and helps you get over it. So I, I actually take it as a vinegar a lot of the time wow. rather than a sweet syrup. I have a like, balsamic vinegar thing, which is my favorite. And I put it on all my food. Wouldn't it be wonderful to find in nature's larder a solution to this this virus? Wouldn't it be absolutely fantastic? I know. There's plenty of medicinal things that will help your body be in tip-top condition, and I think that's our best defense yeah, yeah. at the moment we have. Sure. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to go scud through all the um, uh, slides, that, no, uh, as you say, but which ones would you like me to move on to before we touch on books? I've got a few questions as well that have, that have come in. Uh, and again, if people want to add their questions, just put a cue at the beginning of the, the question so we spot it straight away, and I'll add it to the list. Um, my laptop's gone to sleep, but um, just I can just mention them. If you just flip them through really quickly, I can just say what else we had that I had there. So talking about antiviral and stuff, turkey tail mushrooms, again, I won't go into it, into it now. They're not edible, but you can make a tincture or a tea out of them. And again, they're super immune boosting, fantastic, long history of knowing that this is good for us in that way. So research that if you're interested. Never seen one of those at all. Where would I find one? On a birch tree or ash tree? Yeah, birch. Um, it does go on other woods as well. But if you can find it on birch, that's even better because it's um, there's things in birch that fungi growing on it takes on that is also known to be very medicinal uh, for immune systems particularly. Another one, just because we're in lockdown, people might have a magnolia tree and certainly in Leeds, they're still in full bloom at the moment and they taste of ginger. They're absolutely delicious. And if you pickle those, you can use them with sushi like pickled ginger. It's absolutely delicious. Outstanding wow. flavour. If, if you get a chance to nibble a petal, just just surprise yourself with it as long as you're sure it's magnolia but they're, they're so um distinctive i think if you know what magnolia is try nibbling a petal it's really interesting wow i never knew that before um we we don't have a lot of time to talk about coastal but because i do cover everything i wanted to mention this particular seaweed that just it's also called the truffle of the sea it is like eating truffle when you eat a bit of this i love taking chefs out because they they try this seaweed and I don't really tell them much about it beforehand. I was like, oh, try but find a bit of this and try that. And just watching their face, they're like, oh my goodness, what just happened on my taste buds? It's like, I know, right? Isn't it amazing? And it is just the most incredible flavour. So that's my favourite seaweed. Um, pepper dolls. Razor clams. And spring. Yeah. But seeing as we were, were in spring and we're talking about it, it's the time of year when we have the super, super low tides. We have the, We have those super moons and those are there because the, the moon's just that tiny bit closer to the earth and it makes the tides extra high, which is great for fishing, and extra low for 
foraging for razor clams. And there's just a couple of days every month for about three months when you can actually walk over their razor beds so you can go razor clamming. And it's a, it's a thing I love to do. And I've been so gutted not to go this year. And um, it's very unusual. But it's, it, it's quite an art to practice. Is, it, is, the, is the technique, I saw um, Hugh Fernley using uh, water mixed with salt and squirting it into the hole and the razor clam eject itself. Is that, is that the, the technique to get it out? It is, yeah. You put salt, you see, you walk along and you see them shoot the water out, which is why the, the Scots call them spook clams, um, uh, because they spout the water out the top. And that's how you know where they are. And before that hole collapses again in the sand, you, you pour the salt down it and then a bit of water sometimes, depending on the beach and how wet it is. And um, then you just wait, and then this, this clam sort of pushes itself out of its burrow. Wow, fantastic. You take Straight into your frying pan. Pretty much. Or not, <laughs> because actually they're, they're so good, you, you barely want to even cook them if you're going to cook them, because they're, they're so nice. Uh, that was the cheeses I mentioned. I make goat's cheeses, and that's just a nice little example of, um, if you look on my my blogs and my sites, you'll see lots of recipes for these things. Those are just the ingredients for a raw nettle dip, as you can just see what they are there. And there's, there's a soup recipe on my site as well. If you want to make a wild green soup, all of the stuff should be available for most people on their exercise walks at the moment if they go to a park or a wood. That looks very uh, pretty. Just a nice little flowers. Yeah. So, so many flowers are edible and I, I make wild cocktails, which I really enjoy doing. That was a, a plum blossom one that's full of like plum shrub and uh, plum sake and all sorts of things. It was inspired by the um, opening of the, the, the blossoms in Japan. So, so tell yeah, me something, question. Do, do you find during this lockdown all your neighbours are popping around for you for, uh, for exotic uh, things left on the doorstep? They're, well, here's a plum cocktail I've got spare. I'll, I'll just leave this here for you. Well, we do have a street WhatsApp, and um, if I'm going to the woods, I say, does anyone want any wild garlic or anything? And so, yeah, I just deliver them around on the doorsteps. Oh, and brilliant. We've been sharing sourdough starters and all sorts of things. And there's your, you're obviously in your wild camping element. Yeah, that was me cooking a, a mallard, a wild mallard and a partridge that I found on the way. So, now, somebody <laughs> did ask about books, so I think it might be just worthwhile uh, just touching on this. The, and that's, who was it? Um, Hampshire Today, is there any recommended books for newbies? Yeah, there's lots. And I just quickly put some that I really like and I do recommend to um, beginners. But there's there's loads more. I've got I don't know, 50 books on foraging because I think they all offer something and lots of field guides as well. So you sort of need two sides of things. You need a book, some books that are about what's edible, how to use those parts, recipes, that sort of thing. And it may or may not go into huge identification detail. And then the other ones, you need the field guide. So once you know the name of the species that you're looking for, you look them up in your field guide and that will tell you the exact ID features and the other relatives and all that sort of thing. So you sort of need to do both, but your field guides don't tend to tell you about edibility. They just tell you how to identify it. So you need those two in combination for whatever area of foraging you want to get into, whether that's plants. So that's why we've got the, the wildflower key there. Um, Roger Phillips, I think that's just off the top of the picture there, but the that's Roger Phillips Mushrooms. That's a great encyclopedic book. The first one there is Food for Free. That one's got a little bit of everything in, and that's the, the definitive one that was out years ago oh, Richard by Roger Maybe. Maybe. 
Richard, maybe, sorry. Um, yeah. Never mind the burdocks. That's Emma Gunn down in Cornwall. And she's, she's just on the fourth book now, I think. So she's done one for each of the seasons. Great recipes, really interesting plants and things. It's mainly plants, but it's, um, really good. I'd recommend those. They're good fun as well. Lots of interesting recipes. The seaweeds, that one there is my definitive guidebook for that. It doesn't talk about edibility, but it, pretty much all seaweeds are edible. Um, but that one is, the, there's very few books on seaweed that give you all of the species. And that, that was the one that really helped me. Um, that, that one there, the grey one, Wild Food, that's Roger Phillips again. Anything by him is fantastic. Um, and then they've got John Wright, who's the River Cottage guy who they feature on River Cottage sometimes. And he's one of our our mushroom fathers in our um, Association of Foragers. He's, he's sort of one of the, the people we all look up to because he's been doing this forever. And so him and Roger Phillips and a few others. Um, again, anything by them are just wonderful. Plus, he's just got such a dry sense of humour. And it, it's a fun, it's always a fun read as well as all the information. It's really good. Okay, well, let's come on to some questions now. I've got a few here that I'd like to, to bring up. And if anybody's got any more questions, there's about a 20 second, 30 second delay between now and you hearing that. Uh, do fire the questions in very quickly. We've got about five, five, 10 minutes uh, and then we'll be wrapping up. But uh, here's the first question um, from Jake Salter. If foraging from the edge of fields or farmland, how mindful should you be of pesticide runoff? Also, is there anywhere you would definitely not forage from, e.g. an industrial estate, etc.? Thanks, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you need to use your common sense and it does help to know an area. So you probably want to visit a few times before you really forage from somewhere and, and get to know, um, yeah, where might stuff be running off from. Pesticides are usually sprayed onto things. I don't know how much they take them up through the roots, but of course they, they do that as well. So you want to go to places that are just unkempt and nice and wild really as much as possible. And that is possible to find even in a city. Um, but you, there's so many, I mean, it's just too much to talk about right now, but you've just got to use your common sense. And to be honest, these there isn't set rules for these things. I would say it's down to personal tolerance and personal you know, how much you want to it to be, you know, that you know it's 100% clean or, or and often you're only using little bits of things here and there. So if you really want to look into it, there will be information on each species of how much they take up stuff and, um, you know, it's all out there. Plus with the seaside, you need to look at the water quality ratings that week and everything as well, because there can be, you know, issues and that would be on the sort of... Um, national sites about that kind of thing so yeah there isn't time to go into it now but there's there's so many things you can do to learn about the area that you're in right um right. where i wouldn't forage um i don't forage in nature reserves or anything like that and i don't yeah i wouldn't go anywhere that just looks dirty and rubbishy and and you don't know if there's a landfill under there or whatever like i, I would i'd go to areas i know have been undisturbed for a long time and that are well away from walkers and dogs and car fumes and all that sort of thing. Okay, it's okay. Just, I, I'm just, yeah, common sense. Um, from Hampshire today, does hen in the woods, I presume he means chicken in the woods, really taste like chicken? Is it recommended? That's a mushroom, isn't oh, it? Oh, there is. Yeah, there is a hen of the woods and there's a chicken of the woods and they are different. So um, I'll, I'll just quickly mention both. 
um, chicken of the woods comes out earlier in the year and it is a bracket fungus that grows on wood on trees probably dead standing trees but often fallen limbs as well and it is bright orange on top and bright yellow underneath that is you know looks positively poisonous um and it's not so good for you raw but if you cook it really really well yes it is chicken like in texture but it tastes like mushroom hen of the woods is um a frondy um what do you call it like a like a globe i suppose of little fronds that look like um a hen has tucked its head under its wing and is brooding or sleeping at the bottom of the of an oak tree for example um and that again it just tastes intensely mushroomy but it's so cool because it looks like all the little feathers of a brown hen or something okay next one from kayla dawn i love eating chestnut mushrooms raw as they taste lovely is it safe and can you eat other non-poisonous mushrooms raw provided you're 100 percent certain of the type of mushroom that's a really good question, actually, um, because I would suggest that if you're foraging, I would I would cook all your mushrooms to start with. And most mushrooms are best cooked because if you've made a mistake, if you cook it, then you probably wouldn't have a problem. But some of them, it doesn't matter if they're cooked or not. They will still be as deadly as they were before. So that's why you need to start off with the most poisonous mushrooms first. Learn those. But then later into the other more grey areas, cooking them will save you from a, a mistake in, in lots of cases. But it's also how digestible they are. Mushrooms are generally more digestible if they're cooked. They're very fibrous. But there's also been things around even like the shop-bought mushrooms. There's been some papers, research papers done that have suggested that if you have too many, even of those agaricus, the shop-bought mushrooms, raw um, there's the potentially carcinogenic and stuff. So uh, again, I don't want to alarm anybody, but go and research that. If you like eating shop-bought mushrooms raw, loads of them all the time, I would look into that for yourself and make your own judgment on the information that's out there. But yeah, I would say to keep you safe and for digestion, um, I would cook all of your forage mushrooms. That said, when you are absolutely 100% sure and you're more experienced, there are some mushrooms that you can eat raw, like the porcini mushrooms, they're amazing, raw, really, really good. And there's a few others. Those scarlet elf cups that I showed you at the beginning, those can be eaten raw in, you know, if you just have a few. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think for safety, I would say cook them. Okay, well, this is an interesting one. Um, Hampshire today. Can you do anything with hemlock apart from poison the neighbours who leave their stereo on all night long? <laughs> um, I'm not prepared to say anything other than no. <laughs> I'm, no, I've said that. Have I read somewhere that the henlock um, stem can be used to make rope? Would that be right? Oh, that's not my wheelhouse, really. I'm sure if you ask some bushcrafters, they might know more about that. Um, but the poison hemlock specifically, it is. It, you don't need much for it to be deadly, and the root particularly is very poisonous, and it does just look like a white carrot. Um, so in a survival situation or something, yeah, that would be extremely dangerous. I think in America they they have problems with it too because they um there there's some other sort of wild parsnipy things that they do eat there and if people then accidentally get hemlock then there's huge issues. I think it was um was it Socrates or one of the the philosophers that was put to death by hemlock. 
Oh, okay, okay. Um, I should have paid more attention in classics. And finally, uh, from Mark Jan Dielimans, um, that's right. Uh, is there a good foraging food to find on the riverbank uh, from the canoe? I think Mark Jan's in the UK, he's not, uh, not in Holland. Um, well, I, I, a lot of the plants will be the same in Holland as well. But the yeah, all, all of the things I've shown you today could grow on a riverbank. Uh, riverbank specifically, there is another umbellifer that's quite nice. Um, this one here, which is called Sweet Sicily, and it has these little white bleached spots on it. And this one is in the carrot family as well, but no one, no others have these these bleached spots on it. And the key thing is that it tastes of of aniseed, like really anise, licorice sort of thing. Not quite like fennel, it's sweeter than that. And it, so that's a really good indication. So if you crush it and smell it, it, it should smell of um, aniseed. And that one's really interesting. And the seed pods are really big as well. And they're like um, sherbet-y, aniseed-y sweet. And they really like waterways. But I often find wild garlic along there, the hogweed, jack by the hedge, all these things that we've covered today are often all along a riverbank as well. Well, fantastic. Lisa, thank you so much for this evening and taking the time. It's been a, a fantastic dip into practical, realistic things and certainly having them there to show us as well has been great. Uh, if you want to follow Lisa, then Edulis Wild Food is her name on virtually everything by the looks of it. And I think her website is eduliswildfood.co.uk. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. So uh, do you mind if people contact you if they have any particular questions or clarification they need at all? Oh, yeah. That's fine. Um, I, I do check the channels fairly regularly, but I, it might not be instant. But yeah, if you, if you want to ask me, um, well, ask me anything you like, but and I'll do my best. But if you want to say, I've got this, is it that thing? Or you mentioned this on the show, is is this thing in my garden the same thing or whatever just take me some really good pictures you know <laughs> the things we get through sometimes of like 10 10 meters away and there's this little blurry thing in the middle is this a morel you're like oh, i don't know so think about the fact that i'm going to have to try and identify this from from the photo so a good in focus close pictures of the different parts of the plant if you can't get it all in or the mushroom um there's also lots of facebook groups and things i, I won't go into any now but that there's lots of those it's worth joining some foraging facebook groups if you're interested in getting into this because then when you start you know you get some books and you start learning for yourself it's really great to have a whole load of people who are into this as well you put your photos up say sort of the environment you found it in where it was in the country that sort of thing and they can help you you say I, i've had a look in the books and i think it's this but i need a second opinion then all those people will if you've got good photos they can um you know give suggestions as well and i'm not saying that they'll be right but it, it, it just with lots of people commenting on it it, it starts to show you whether most people think you're right or you're not, and they should tell you why they think you're wrong as well, which will help you learn. Well, that's, that's fantastic, Lisa, and thank you very much for volunteering to help people in that way. That's really good of you. 
that brings us pretty well to the end of the show. Uh, as I say, we are doing one big stream next week on uh, Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. I'll still be releasing my podcasts uh, on the Friday, and I may do some occasional live streams during the week if I feel like sticking a tent up and talking about it or discussing things outside if the weather holds as it seems to be at the moment. So thanks everybody for joining us once again. I do hope you've enjoyed that. Please stay tuned and perhaps uh, come and join us on the various social medias that we're on and do follow us and pick up the details. It'd be great to keep in contact and keep this momentum going. So on that note, I shall say farewell. Look after yourselves, everybody, and also look after your loved ones during this cautious time. Take care now. Bye for now. Well, I hope that's inspired you to keep your eyes open during your daily exercise this spring. The links to Lisa and Edulis Wild Foods can all be found, of course, over on the outdoorstation.co.uk website. And we have discussed already doing another one in autumn, all being well, when Elisa tells me there'll be even more to talk about. In the meantime, please come along and join in with the video streams on Wednesday evening. Uh, You can interact with the guests or the subject that we're particularly talking about. All of the previous ones, of course, are still available, as I've mentioned, over on YouTube and the Facebook The Outdoor Station Live page. So perhaps if you're bored and want a little bit of entertainment, you know where to find them. So once again, folks, under the current circumstances, look after yourself, take care out there, take care of your loved ones, and hopefully we will see you soon. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.